Hello and welcome to 128 Sterling. Artists, by their very nature, are folk with a foot in two worlds, the ones they live inside and others they populate on their own terms. I suppose some exit the real world, we might call it, for imaginary ones, and if they shut the door behind them, we say they're mad. But when they convince us that we're the ones on the wrong side of the door, we call them gifted. They're big talents, doing the right thing while we're on shaky ground. Our feet are rooted in a single world, and we read avidly because the artist has helped us plant one foot in another. That's all good writing is, really, a transporter that allows us to enter into worlds not our own, worlds separated from us by time, place, or sensibility. The writer conjures that other world and brings it home. Some do so because the divided circumstances of their lives have imposed an urgent mandate and a wish to convey what is strange to the majority. I thought about this sharing a stage recently with Tava Harrison, a woman who, aged 37, discovered she had stage 4 metastatic breast cancer and wrote about her extraordinary situation, staring down death as most of us don't have to do at such an early age, in her illustrated memoir, In Between Days. She'd never thought about being an artist till then. Nor had Edmonton's Patti LeBucane Benson until she teamed up with Kelly Mellings to write a graphic novel, The Outside Circle, as a way of communicating the validity and success of traditional First Nations practices and healing vis-à-vis Indigenous people suffering historical trauma passed on from one generation to the next. Others bridge two worlds through acts of sheer imagination, as the Indo-Canadian playwright and author Anosh Irani has done again with his latest novel, The Parcel. Anosh has been nominated for a couple of prizes this year, though you won't need that incentive to want to read this writer with a foot in two worlds, one so much the making of his imagination and memory that he still won't call the city his stories are rooted in Mumbai. No, his world is Bombay to him. That's how he left it when, in his twenties and with ambitions to write, he travelled to Canada and decided to stay. The 1990s Bombay streets Anosh left lay next to Kamatipura, the red-light district he needed to walk through as a child to get to school. The eponymous parcel of Anosh's latest novel is Kinjal, a young Nepali miner and a victim of human trafficking delivered in a cage to the Hijra, or transgender, Madhu. Formerly a prostitute, Madhu is, in her forties, the denizen of Kamatipura charged with breaking the spirit of the parcel, ridding the young Nepalese girl of hope, identity, even her name, in order to prepare her for life as a sex worker in the city's notorious brothels. Anosh is an old friend, and we chatted in my backyard. So if you don't mind, Anosh, I'd like to read a a couple of pages and perhaps a scene that explores this intense relationship between Madhu and the parcel Kinjal, the young Nepalese girl. It's a strange teacher-student relationship, I suppose you right. could say, in this perverse world. Right. So the, the section that I'm reading, what happens is Madhu is talking to the parcel and uh, one of the ways she wants the parcel to realize that there's no point in trying to escape or fight back is to make her realize that she's been betrayed by her own family. She's been sold by her aunt. That's the section that I'll read. How did you get here? asked Madhu. She knew the parcel would not answer. The girl was breathing too heavily. The air must feel as if it was closing in on her. The tight space was unfit for anything that breathed, let alone a human being. 
The smell of piss, acidic and thorny, reached Madhu's nostrils. The cage was an oven, and so far it had baked the parcel to perfection. It was time to call the parcel by her name. Kinjal, said Madhu, answer me. The mention of her name made the parcel flinch. You know me? she asked with utter stupid innocence. Do you want to get out for some air? If you answer my questions, I will take you out, said Madhu. Now tell me, how did you come here? Who brought you here? I am here by mistake. Please, my auntie, she was... Madhu cut her short. The sequence of events had to be played out perfectly, even if they came out of the parcel's own mouth. Right now, the parcel was processing events by memory, but her memory was influenced by her belief in the basic decency of human beings. That belief needed to be stripped away. Did your auntie bring you here? A man brought me. How well the system worked, this one that Madhu herself had devised. It was up to the procuring agent to drill the parcel's family member for information, for details that could make the parcel understand that she had not been kidnapped. In this parcel's case, her aunt, her father's sister, was the one who had cracked the deal. When Madhu had first come into contact with these miners, long before she started working with them, it surprised her how often it was the women in the family who sold the parcels, and not just the fathers, brothers and uncles. Women were equally responsible for the whimpering and rotting of their own fledglings. My auntie took me to Panauti, said the parcel. She made me meet a man. He was a nice man. He told me I would get a job in Bombay. What did your auntie say when she handed you over to the nice man? Asked Madhu. She was crying. She hugged me. She told me to be strong. Had she looked into her niece's eyes? Madhu wondered. Perhaps she had stared straight into those light brown eyes and asked for forgiveness there and then. It was probably the last time they would face each other. Sure, they might meet again in each other's dreams, but, Madhu thought wryly, those meetings could always be washed away. Anosh, one of the things that struck me immediately about your new book, The Parcel, is that social realist aspect to the whole book. It's less fabular. It's rooted in the red light district of Mumbai, which is obviously changing. That's one of the points the novel makes. It's a more tempered tone. I agree because for me, the the reality itself of this world is so harsh that all I needed to do was reflect it. I just wanted to hold a mirror and um, explore the world through the lens of one character, Madhu. And so definitely, it's, I would say it's my most realistic novel. Madhu is transgender. She's made a unit. Yes. The district is Kamatipura, which you know well from your youth. Right. Uh, I think you used to cross it going to school. Right. From the time I was born until I was seven or eight years old, I live in a compound called The Retreat, which was just opposite Kamatipura, about 150 meters away from where I lived. There is still the convent school where the sex workers come out every evening and line up against the wall. And from the time I was very little, I always felt there was something different about them. They were theatrical, but there was also a kind of... I'm using the word darkness, but, you know, when you're young, you don't know what that word really means, but you feel it. Uh, You feel an ache for them, you feel a certain discomfort, and you want to get to know who these people are. And Kamadipura always has had that pull 
I've been haunted by it and inspired by it at the same time. So it's a world I know really well. And it's less a place of magical and exotic stories and more of tragedy, really. Um, Absolutely. You know, even when I moved to Canada at the age of 24, I knew I would write about that world. I explored the character of a hijra in my first play, The Matka King. And I knew that I would write a novel, but I just wasn't ready because I kept researching. Uh, every time I would go back to India, I would just walk in Kamadipura for hours and hours, just observing people. Um, it was only after I wrote the first two drafts of the novel did I actually go and interview a hijra for the first time because I did not want somebody else's narrative to interfere with the story that my character wanted to tell. Uh, eventually, I, I sort of spoke to people who worked with NGOs. I spoke with sex workers. I spoke with pimps, people who were in real estate. And I, I read a lot of non-fiction articles as well. But for me, literature really comes from the street level. And there's this great line by the Russian poet Mayakovsky. He said, my reading room is the streets. And I really believe that because if you if you want to find something authentic and and genuine that really disturbs people and moves them you have to go to the streets and there is nothing magical about this place it's a place that really shouldn't exist but what is magical about the place are the acts of courage and bravery the small acts of kindness that take place that i in a way observed over time but we're dealing with a district that's really the culture on the cusp. That was my point of entry. You know, for the longest time, I didn't write this novel because I didn't have an in. I didn't know why I wanted to write about Kamaripura. Of course, I always start with character. But what I realized was that every time I went back to Bombay, Kamadipura was changing. You know, real estate developers were buying up brothels, small workshop type of factories were coming in and a lot of the sex workers were getting displaced. And for me, that was a reason why I wanted to write. The district itself was dissolving. And what I realized is Madhu, the main character, talks about how her body is letting her down. She's 40 now, she was once the star of the brothel and she was disintegrating physically. So this soul that was dissolving or disintegrating is the actual district. That was what was interesting for me and, and really gave me the conflict. I've been using two words to translate hijra. I've been saying eunuch, I've been saying transgender. Right. Which one should I be using? Well, the thing is that, you know, when you talk about the hijra community, because we're talking in English, we have to find uh, an equivalent word. But actually, we have to drop all of those terms when we're trying to understand the hijra community. Now, there are many different theories about the etymology of the word hijra. Some say it comes from the Arabic hijr, which is migration. Uh, there's hijrat karna, which means to migrate. Uh, there's his, which is the Persian word for hermaphrodite or effeminate. Uh, it doesn't really matter where the word comes from. Madhu uses it to mean migrate. And I've always been someone who's a wanderer. You know, for years I've wandered through the city's red light district like a ghost. And the hijra actually is defined by a guru-disciple relationship. That is the main defining fact of a hijra. So you have Guru Mai who's, who was born a hermaphrodite. And she's also a daima, which means she's a midwife. Uh, she, she is the one who performs the act of castration and initiates uh, the person who wants to become a hijra into the community. So the Gurumai works as a sort of spiritual guide, protector, caregiver, but also ends up, in a way, owning them. 
Yes, she presents Madhu after this operation and the 40-day recovery with effectively an invoice yeah. and, and explains you know, <laughs> yes. the money that needs to be paid right. back. Does this notion of migration also reflect the migration of sexual identity or sexual proclivity? Absolutely, because they're always trying to find home, which is why Madhu latches on to that meaning. She doesn't find the meaning of the Persian word his, which is effeminate or hermaphrodite, as necessarily empowering. Uh, she is always trying to find home. Madhu was born a boy, but faced so much rejection by the parents. She felt trapped and she felt she was born in the wrong body and was always trying to find home, not just for the soul to find a place within the body, but also once she became a hijra, she still felt she didn't have a home. You know, so absolutely, these are lost souls. At least this character is in the novel. The news intervenes. At a point late in the narrative, there was a brutal, infamous, globally reported rape of a student by three rather ignorant men. And I think that Gildermai and Madhu are watching on television. Right. They're watching the news and she demands, and Gildermai, the older woman, demands that it be turned off. Largely because the voice of the people on the street is one crying for the castration of the rapists. Right. As if it's a deserving, awful fate. Right. Which is not how she regards her condition or those in her care. Right. And it's an interesting moment because the general population, they all think, okay, what's the worst thing we can do to the men who have committed this horrendous act? We can castrate them. But hijras sometimes undergo castration because it empowers them. So it's completely demeaning what they are about. Definitely the pain that Madhu feels is universal. You know, the idea of trying to find home, the idea of being rejected. But it's hard to transplant that world here. And I don't think it should be transplanted because they're two very different worlds. One of the things that I realized while I was writing this novel was, oh, how is anyone else really different from Madhu? We're not that different, even though our worlds are completely different, because all she wants is to be accepted by a family. And every human being gets wounded by rejection. You know, if, if there's something in our childhood where we get rejected by our parents, at the end of the day, that's all we really want. We want love and we want acceptance. And that rejection sets her off on this incredible journey, which only brings her pain and more pain. The lessons may be universal, but the conditions in your mind are quite specific. Very specific. This is a very specific novel in a very specific uh, place about a very specific culture. And it's a, it's a subculture in a way. Um, and anything that is a subculture, what I realized again while I was researching this book, is whatever we repress, whatever the mainstream society represses, eventually becomes a subculture. You know, these people are forced to operate in the cold, they're forced to operate in the shadows. And it's it's sort of funny how the mainstream society thinks that has nothing to do with them, when in fact it has everything to do in a way, because whatever we repress shows up and operates in the shadows. Anna Shirani, author of The Parcel. Patty Labucane Benson is the author, with illustrator Kelly Mellings, of the best-selling graphic novel The Outside Circle, the winner this year of the Code Burt Award for First Nation Inuit and Metis Literature. As a Metis woman, Patty's had a foot in two worlds from the start, and she's an amazing person, strong, thoughtful, dynamic, full of conviction. 
her work as Director of Research, Training and Communication for NCSA, the Native Counseling Services of Alberta, has made her all the more conscious of the divisions of the mind that traumatic history imposes upon children of residential school survivors. It's this knowledge she's put into play with the warrior programs for residents of the Stan Daniels and Buffalo Sage Wellness Centres of Alberta that featured in the pages of the Outside Circle. A brilliant piece of work, it's the story of Pete Carver, a young Aboriginal man living in a no-hope world of drugs, gang violence and street living, but who finds a way out of the mire through the sort of healing that Patty practices. Understanding the intergenerational trauma of colonial legislation, residential school policy and the 60s scoop that saw Indigenous children taken away from their homes is key, says Patty, to breaking the repeating cycle of men and women without the example of families unable to parent themselves. I was in Edmonton recently and sought out Patty and her associates, Vicki Whalen, a Cree elder, and Claire Carefoot, the director of the Buffalo Sage Wellness Centre. We discussed their work and the practices that give the residents, convicted Aboriginal offenders, a chance of recognising the lack in their lives and addressing it so that ultimately they're able to exit one world with a much better chance of functioning in another. Claire Carefoot. Women, Aboriginal women, are the fastest growing incarcerated groups of people in the country. And for some reason, once they get into prison, they very likely stay till either the end of their sentence or their statutory release, which is the legal two-thirds when they can be released to the community. So I'm kind of a fiscal conservative. I mean, I say, why keep these people in these big prisons locked up to the end of the sentence? When as a taxpayer, we know they're safer, we know the community's safer when they're released slowly into the community. Vicki, you're sharing a history that many of the people who say either St. Daniels or here are not aware of, so it's as if they have a foot in a couple of worlds, but don't know that. And that word, reconciliation, is about reconciliation not just with other communities, which is how I've tended to understand it, but with yourself. Exactly. Vicki Whalen. A lot of the people that are incarcerated, well, they don't know why they did what they did. The biggest thing is when they find out about the residential schools and about that whole cycle. A lot of them would say they hated their parents and they were going to beat them up. And then they found out there was that loss of parenting skills when they were raised in a residential school. As we're talking about it, all of a sudden, by the time the whole program is finished, they forgive their parents. I know when I started doing the programs and that, it had to go back to the history part of that residential schools and what happened to their parents, that whole cycle. Of being deprived of your parents and not knowing how to parent as a consequence. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I mean, that's simplifying a lot. But. And wearing a mask. These women and men have worn masks all their lives. Because when you're hurt so badly, you don't want anyone to see that. You learn very easily to carry that mask. And what Patty wrote about is getting underneath that mask. Why do we do the mask in the warrior program? I usually do a meditation with them, and then we do the mask. You put the masks on the earth and leave them, or mm-hmm. do you still actually take... We put the masks on the earth to cleanse, and then they often they're put on top of the lodge. Put it face down into Mother Earth, take the negativity off. And then we turn them over, and usually it was on full moon night. Mm-hmm. And so that the grandmother beams would hit the mask because they'd go back and turn it over. So the grandmother beams with the goodness back in. But before we'd start even this, we had to walk around and 
petals and the defects of character like maybe the anger, jealousy, revenge, hate. We put it around there, we've been praying about it for that to be absorbed by Mother Earth. And then when they turn the mask over, the goodness is going into the mask. Then we put them onto the lodge. Mm-hmm. On top of the sweat lodge. Yeah. They're all placed in there while they're in ceremony. The members of the circle, do they spend, as your book suggests, Patty, 24 hours on the land? Yeah. yeah. Now you're not doing that on Jasper Avenue, you're doing it somewhere else. Just on 97th Street. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. We're out in the country for the sweat lodges. So, Patty, was this employment of, of history as council? You know, always part of your program. So it's not enough to know our history. Patty Labucane Benson. Although we've spent a lot of time looking at our history, but it is about how this manifests in the behaviors and the thoughts and the feelings of the people that we work with. And by the people we work with, I mean even our family members. For a lot of the people we work with, they have to reconcile them and their creator first. That's the first relationship that has to be worked through. And then them and themselves, like me who I am, who reclaiming a positive identity. Many of us are reconciling family relationships damaged in this colonial process by the residential school system, but also by other pieces of legislation that have kept family members apart. The child welfare legacy, even the Lands Act of 1850, has things going on today in families. 85% of the 200 people that work at Native Counseling are Indigenous. Their First Nations are Métis. And it's often them reconciling within their family, as well as doing this work of reconciliation here. Well, it's marvelous in your book. There's one frame in which Peter Carver, mm-hmm. your troubled youth's mum, has to sign a form conceding custody of Peter's brother, Joey, mm-hmm. to the Albertan government. And the document begins, as I imagine a real form would, and then it transforms into a litany of all the acts that have served to deprive Indigenous families of that parental-child relationship. Exactly. Well, and clearly no parent ever signs their child away. Children are apprehended. But in that moment, I wanted to place the experience of Bernice Carver and Joey Carver in a larger historical experience of many, many, many Indigenous people who are living with historic trauma and are having their children taken away from them, and it's perpetuating historic trauma in the removal of children. Can I ask you about the word warrior? Is that the right word? Is that a good word? Um, Is it an English word? Is it a Cree word? What do you think, Vicky? What is that metaphor? It really is a metaphor at this point. Yeah, it is. And a way of making men feel proud? Or? It is. But what I consider a real warrior is somebody that can feel within and be able to speak. Being even able to cry. Where, like, for men it's harder to heal because men are raised not to cry. So even to get them to that point where they're able to shed tears about the things that happened to them in the past... But also I've seen them where they're really caring and they're really respectful to the elders and into ceremony and to their children. Are you ever actually introducing mother and child who have not met? Have you ever done that? I'm not sure how we've done that yet. I can't remember, no. But Vicky gives a parenting course. Right. Mm -hmm. We have a little boy here who, because he's living here and he's spending time with the elders, he is being an elder's helper. He's starting the smudge in the morning. He's, what, three? He's not two yet. He's not even two yet. And he's learning about his culture because his mom is in jail. That's a crazy idea, but it's happening here. Oh, I love that your youngest elder is three. I know. (laughs) (laughs) He's an elder in the making. (laughs) We're speaking in what is essentially a safe place. 
Exactly. Presumably, for you to be successful, the women you take in here must arrive at a point where the walls are meaningless and they can just step out into Edmonton at large or mm-hmm. Winnipeg at large if we were there. It's great that we're hearing laughter in the corridors. Do you know in your heart or soul when people are ready? Most of the time. <laughs> Sometimes. For some. Peter, in the outside circles, he's not free until he really understands it's his choice. Mm, exactly. Yeah. The, when they become free, you can see it on their face, you can see it in their body language. When they're finally that ready, he, he actually, his freedom, without giving it all away, there's a very specific spiritual symbol that is attached to his freedom of mind. And that has to do with when he starts making good decisions for himself and his family, his, uh, his spirit becomes known and is with him all the time. And in the very last altercation, when he is finally saying, I'm done with this, it's probably his spirit that the people he's talking to sees more than they see him. Because the, the way that it's drawn, the, the, the reader can see that this spirit is so big and so overpowering and so scary, you know, in that moment of protection, that, um, that it diffuses the situation right away. So his freedom is about the ability to make good decisions when he starts trusting himself. Mm-hmm. You can see he's physically transformed in the process. And I'd say that was accurate with the women and men that we work with. Exactly. Yeah. Do residents that have left, do they come back? Do they come see you? Is there a sense of community or, or being a graduate? Oh, yeah. <laughs> you That's should be here on the weekends. Yeah, yeah. And then the two worlds are stark and cohabiting. Tava Harrison has chronicled her ongoing journey about planet cancer, a disease she may well have come by hereditarily, in the illustrations and essays of her Governor General's Award-nominated memoir, In Between Days. Not about to live any of them with less passion or velocity, she's followed up her memoir with the Joyful Living Coloring Book. Now, I'm a friend of Tava's and her partner David's, and I can tell you that even were she not sick, I'd worry for her, what with her utterly endearing will, more than habit, to embrace friends, followers and strangers with warm, genuine hugs. Really, that's a lot of hugs. I don't mean to be grim, but I kind of think the Reaper may have come round a couple of times already, but she did just that, giving the fella such a close embrace that he turned right round, befuddled as Scrooge. Tava and I chatted some weeks back, candidly, it's the only way she knows, as he waited for another round of treatments in a Toronto hospital. We're now on the third floor of the Princess Margaret Hospital in Toronto. How often are you a visitor here? Pretty much weekly, at minimum monthly. Sometimes a couple times a a week. And what are you going through today? Today I'm going to have a CT scan. It's my sort of regular quarterly CT scan. So we're just seeing the lay of the land and if my current treatment is still working for me. This is an expression, a common expression, but you've been living with cancer for two and a half years. How do you think of your cancer? Is it a companion? Is it something in the abstract? Well, it is part of my body. It's a complicated relationship, probably one of the more complicated relationships in my life. Because it's, it's all tied up in things like it's hereditary, so it's tied up in what I've inherited from my family, who I also feel as though I've inherited a number of my best attributes from. It's tied up in my sense of my body and its reliability and its strength or lack thereof. But it's just, I just think of it as a little wrong turn my cells took. 
when you set out writing in between days and doing the drawings for in between days did you understand that your book would take you back in time with your family and have you exploring the generations and your cousins and your aunts and your great aunt the book grew so organically that as i was writing it it was triggering memories and thoughts and sometimes really beautiful tangents i was thinking a lot about my family i was thinking about my mom thinking about what it must be like for her after watching her sister die and watching her mom go through all that cancer and watching her aunt die to have her daughter be sick and and so i was thinking a lot about my family and what it means to live what it means to outlive so i think simply reflecting on the cancer led me there you finished the book it's out in the world in a sense it no longer belongs to you is there anything about the tone of it that you find interesting having finished it now you know here's an interesting thing about me i don't read a lot of confessional literature so i'm a little bit surprised that i write it <laughs> you know i think you, i think sure. of you more as a witness and i find you remarkably accepting and cool in your description and i i felt i felt when i was making this work like i had no choice long before i even knew that it would be a book i had no choice but to be making the work there are so many holes you can just fall down of information that's so interesting and i'm i'm finding that experientially i'm in this whole new world that i didn't know anything about and so telling people about that feels relevant because if i didn't know how could everybody else if that makes sense so this comic is called remembrances and it has a drawing of tiny me sitting on the bed with my aunt janet and here is the accompanying essay remembrances aunt janet was my mom's little sister her only sister her big bushy curls always made her seem slighter than she was and she was a small woman with a wide warm smile janet was kind she always made sure that the little ones like me felt included we spent holidays with janet and her family alternating between our house and theirs made us cousins close when janet found out that she had breast cancer it had already spread everywhere she chose to forego chemo instead pouring her hopes into faith healers eating strange foods and wasting away janet was only 34 when she died leaving her husband lost in grief with two children too small to understand in the end I remember her only in bed. The bed seemed extra vast to me because she was so frail. A radical mastectomy and cachexia had left her just a whisper of a woman. The wasting had left her features large, her neck drawn, her thick curls dwarfing her tiny body. The last time I saw her, she gave me a coral necklace to remember her by. And if I could forget I understand now though the fear of being forgotten of being erased what is it that we leave when we go except the impressions we've made on the people we've loved and who've loved us do you 
think about the world without you? I do think about the world without me. I think about it mostly in reference to David, in reference to my family. Friends too, but not to the same degree. I feel like it's really the people at the core who are the most shattered, disrupted, whose life takes a different bend when when someone is gone. And then it ripples in a diminishing way out through acquaintances. I think that thinking about the world without me has been a real motivator to make me want to produce, to draw, to write, to get thoughts on paper. But mostly I think about a world without me, for me, mostly in a selfish way that um, I, I like being here. Teva, my words are for you. I watched my uncle live as you are doing, a foot in both worlds. Why do we imagine we live in one place? Why do we think we face death as if it is not in us already? First Nations believe that every one of us has a connection to Mother Earth, to Creator, our ancestors, and it is this faith that keeps us moving forward. Knowing there is something more out there that in turn allows us to feel connected to things bigger than ourselves. Perhaps it is this very reasoning that explains why I refuse to litter. <laughs> or maybe it's because I don't want to be on TV with one solid tear rolling down my stoic face. But it turns out to be much more than that. When Creator made Nehios, or what you call First Nations, it is said that he took soil from the earth for the body, aspen trees as the bones, and berries for the blood. Once the body was created, it needed life and warmth, so he took a piece of the sun and he placed it in our hearts. That is what these first two people were made of. Through this process of creation, our connection to the physical realm, to Mother Earth, was created. Just like how our parents pass on relations through DNA, we became relatives of the land, eternally tied to its well-being. That explains why whenever there's a travesty committed to Mother Earth, you'll be sure to find a rather angry Indian with a crudely written sign and a small one-man tent with four people sleeping inside. Before Creator made the first two people, he had already created the animals and he told them to watch over his new children. Now, it is said that the animals were also created to look after the land, that each one had a job on this earth, and that they had such a strong connection to the spirit world, they could talk to Creator and his many helpers. They were the spirits of Mother Earth. So when the first man and woman had children, they needed another means to reproduce outside of family. Creator's answer to this was through the spirits. One day, the first son was out hunting when, much to his surprise, he came across a beautiful woman. This woman was a bear spirit that had shapeshifted into human form to meet the young man. It was love at first sight, and it was through this love that the first human was created that had a connection to the spirits, a one-way toll-free line to the Almighty. 
This was our gift from the Creator, a gateway into the afterlife. From that day forward, we walk this earth with a greater understanding of ourselves, our connection to the land and to the spirit world. You and I, we move one step at a time with a foot in both worlds. Thank you to Dale Alexis for his concluding words to A Foot in Two Worlds, today's edition of 128 Sterling. Anil Shirani's fine novel, The Parcel, is published by Knopf Canada. Patty Labucane Benson and Kelly Melling's The Outside Circle and Tava Harrison's In Between Days and The Joyful Living Coloring Book are available through the House of Anansi. Oh, and I have a new book out, an account of my political misadventures in Canada's 2015 federal election called The Candidate, Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail. It's published by Doubleday Canada. And it's excellent. Buy it or any of these books and improve your mind, or it'll be the holiday season soon enough, someone else's. 128 Sterling is produced for the House of Anansi with help from the Canada Council for the Arts and is presented by me, Noah Richler, and Charles Spearin does the musical bits. Next time, it could happen here. What a few good novels have presaged about the American electoral circus. Till then, goodbye, and thanks for listening.